I want to throw out an actual case and just just hear how he explains it. I think it'd be fun to look at this case from uh, Craig Keener's book. Got to kind of get that right there. There we go on miracles. And uh, this is a case where his long term close friend, Malays Woldenstek, a minister from Ethiopia, shared with him accounts of healings in the United States including the healing of a physician and his wife for whom he prayed on the same night. Malays referred me to the physician in question. Whereas most cured people do not retain or even know how to obtain medical records, this man, being a physician, did so and provided me extensive copies detailing the test results. So the physician shared that he initially experienced a chest pain from an infection, which he seemed to start recovering from until he began coughing up a bunch of blood. He approached a colleague who was a pulmonologist, who would know about these sort of things, who found not only an infection, but also a suspicious lesion on the CT scan. A second CT scan confirmed this mass. It was this lesion, rather than the infection, that concerned the pulmonologist friend. Although only a biopsy could determine whether the mass was cancerous, they expected it to be malignant based on their usual experience with lung lesions. Okay, so then that's mm -hmm. sort of the setup. After prayer with this pastor from Ethiopia, Malays, and some others, the physician went for the biopsy. His colleague who did the biopsy could not locate any tumor and therefore, and therefore, biopsied tissue where the tumor was supposed to be. The biopsy indicated not only no cancer, but no tumor at all. Another CT scan confirmed this result. A full body PET scan intended to see if the cancer had spread. So you might say, oh, well, it's gone somewhere. Uh, no, the PET scan confirmed that there was no cancer anywhere in his body. The physician observed in conversation with me that he believed he had been miraculously healed. He noted that in his own practice, any patient with the same initial results he found had faced one of two prospects. Either the person had to have a lung or part of the lung removed, plus radiation therapy, if the diagnosis came early, or the patient died. Mm -hmm. In subsequent conversation, he allowed that plenty of unexplained anomalies happen in medicine. A doctor could thus be hard-pressed to pronounce any given anomaly certainly miraculous. But neither he nor the pulmonologist regarded this case as medically normal, since such masses, even when benign, do not usually simply disappear. Mm -hmm. By contrast, this unexpected recovery fits a larger pattern of healings when Malays prays and in the circles in which he moves. Hmm. I realize that's a messy case. It's not the yeah. typical epistemology case. Yeah. And, you know, so you're welcome to sort of strain out extraneous things. But I thought it's super interesting because here you have a case of healing, supposed healing, that actually happened to a doctor and you have the test results. Right. Yeah. So you can see, like, here's how it was before. Here's how it was after. And it's not, you know, one of the typical cases where people will say, like, well, they're superstitious or they don't know any better. Presumably, it's you've got all trained people. 
and then uh, as it mentioned, as part of a pattern or a seeming pattern of people this pastor's prayed for. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it strikes me that at least from the information, it could it could easily be a case where the best explanation is yeah, it was a healing. Um, you know, the the other explanations would be something they'd have to come up with something like it was they made errors on the initial scans. I mean, so that would require that, which is possible, but two of them. So that makes it a lot less likely uh, that, you know, there was two, two different scans that showed the mass and then were um, somehow both were mistaken. I mean, that's, that's possible, but not very likely at all. Um, so, yeah, I mean, especially it, one of the things that makes a big difference uh, when it comes to evaluating explanations, whether it's in, in my sort of phenomenal explanationist view or say a broader best explanation is background evidence. And if you've got background evidence that supports that God exists and that God um, will on occasion heal, then you've got a really good fit. Now, if someone is a naturalist and they want to insist that, um, you know, there's no God and there's no, you know, so nothing like that could happen then the explanation that there was some sort of error will be the, would have to be the best explanation given that. But the problem is you don't have evidence for that sort of naturalism. And so I think if you kind of, even if we look at it mm. more, you know, even a, even a standpoint that doesn't, that's kind of just more neutral, even say, well, we've got, say you're agnostic, right? So someone, their, their background evidence is, you know, maybe God exists, maybe God doesn't, they haven't ruled it out. You look at the odds that uh, um, the two scans were mistaken. Um, you know, when you've got the medical records and the, the physicians think this, versus the, the explanation offered by no, it was a healing, and there's a pattern with this guy. I think even then it stacks up pretty well in favor of um, this being a miraculous healing. Wow! So uh, even the naturalists would have a hard time of coming up with a explanation that's more plausible that would rule yeah. out it being miraculous yes i think the naturalist um they're committed to saying well so if, if we if we build in naturalism into the background right so what you know there's no god and there can be none of this then the best explanation will have to be one of these naturalistic explanations um but if we don't build that in you know because that from the start just presupposes that it couldn't have been a healing right but if you don't build in that presupposition, right? So if you start out with even a neutral position, um, now the presumably the, the explanatory uh, quality falls more on the side of that it's a healing. Mm. You know, so it's really going to depend. I think you know, which makes sense. If you stack the deck against it being a healing, then what do you know? It's going to end up. You know, your evidence is not going to support that. But if you don't. I think it, it comes out pretty favorable. Mm. This might be a good case to use with an agnostic. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think with an agnostic, if they're really open and say, well, look, I don't know, and I haven't ruled these things out, say, okay, well, what about this sort of case? Which, you know, and especially when you build in the pattern of this guy's done this before, it seems like they're going to have to at least say, well, there's something about when this guy prays for people. There's some connection there between that and people getting better. Uh, and then if the agnostic is, you know, they seem committed, they're going to have to say that. There's something going on there. Uh, statistically, it would just be incredibly unlikely that that would, just by fluke, this guy 
praise and the people get better, like in following a pattern. And then, you know, then it's up to them to say, okay, well, once you've got them that far, say, well, okay, what best explains this? Here's a simple explanation. You know, he prays and God answers the prayers. That's good. Yeah. And I like that because a lot of responses about prayer is that it's sort of amounts to wishful thinking or, yeah, you pray for someone and then, especially if they know about it, if they mm-hmm. know about petitionary prayer and they're more likely to recover because they feel supported or they feel, right. but this is, in, this is, I don't, I don't know exactly the amount of time, but it's relatively instantaneous. Relatively quick. Yeah. And it's, it's not just a chronic issue. It's acute. Right. This is. Yeah, that's acute. right. <laughs> so you've got those two scores on which to claim that somehow pr- this, this guy's pattern of prayer is doing some sort of work that makes the person feel better about their condition and therefore more likely to recover. That becomes pretty, um, definitely not the best explanation of this. Right. Yeah. It becomes kind of hard to swallow that, especially when it's like, well, knowing that you're supported and your wishful thinking typically doesn't make a, you know, a cancerous tumor disappear. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, I'm out of here. yeah it'd be pretty pretty nice to go to the you know we just send a lot more people to to the cancer wards and say hey you know we're, we're rooting for you and then <laughs> we're rooting for you, you know, i've seen you have a mess and yeah, i'm saying get out of here yeah just feel good and you know that'd be great but i don't think that's how it works you know and then um i'd love to here we'll do two more things if that's okay i'd love to hear one case that's from your book your excellent um okay epistemology 50 different puzzles and thought experiments and paradoxes it is a case that plagues phenomenal conservatism but Uh, i i'm assuming your view pe has is able to handle it and it's the bird watching case oh good good yeah Okay, so I will just briefly read it from the book. So John and Deshaun have decided to spend the afternoon birdwatching. Deshaun is an expert when it comes to birdwatching, but John is a complete novice. At one point, they both see a fairly large bird with brownish feathers and a distinctive red tail. Deshaun immediately recognizes uh, this bird because of these and other features, the bird as a red-tailed hawk. John thinks it's a red-tailed hawk too. Neither does Sean nor John specifically call to mind particular beliefs or information about the distinctive features of this particular kind of bird. Rather, they just both simply see the bird and form the belief that it's a red-tailed hawk. It seems clear in this case that Deshaun's belief is justified, but John's isn't. Although it is immediately clear what a theory of justification uh, should say in this case. Although, sorry, although it's immediately clear what a theory of justification should say, it isn't immediately clear how a theory like phenomenal conservatism, conservatism, I always say conservatism, (laughs) <laughs> I always do. Yeah. I don't know why I add the tivism. It's like um, if we, you ever study um, ethics, the, the 
the contract theory and there's like a view contractitarianism or something. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. I always contract, and then it, there's different variations on it too. There's yeah. con contractarianism and there's contractitarianism. <laughs> anyway, uh, for some reason, I always say phenomenal conservatism, but it's just tism. Tism, anyway. yeah. It's just my my issue. Uh, after all, uh, Deshaun and John are seeing the same bird in the same conditions. Doesn't this mean that they're having the same appearances or seemings? Mm -hmm. And if they both have the same seeming and it provides for justification for one of them, shouldn't it provide justification for the other? Now, there's lots of different responses mm -hmm. that you, you canvas so people can go uh, check that out in the book, but I'd love to hear from you just sort of how PE overcomes this wor worry about PC or phenomenal conservatism. Yeah, great. That's that's a great question, Christopher. So this is one of the things that kind of motivated um, my initial stuff on uh, phenomenal explanationism back before Luca and I teamed up for the book. And that's, uh, you know, we want to say in some sense, the expert even, so if we grant that they have the same seeming, so some phenomenal conservatives will deny that. They'll say, well, no, the expert, you actually, uh, so Eli Chugnoff has some good work about perceptual learning. And so he'll he'll say something like, you know, experts actually see different things. Like they their perceptual experience actually changes with their training. But if we grant that they have the same seeming, the phenomenal conservative seems to be committed to claiming they're both equally justified, which seems incorrect. Phenomenal explanationism isn't, committed to that though, because on the phenomenal explanationist picture, right, it's not just the seeming, but it's the overall explanatory setup, right? So in Deshaun's case, he has this appearance of a red-tailed hawk, and he's got all this background information, all this, you know, that's memories of what red-tailed hawks look like, memories that he's, uh, you know, um, an expert on what birds look like, all these memories about, um, and evidence about that he's good at identifying these things. This is the sort of thing he would know and all that. Putting all that together, the best explanation of why it seems to him that it's a red-tailed hawk is that it's a red-tailed hawk. But when you talk about John, John's a novice. So he's got all this background information, you know, that includes things like, I don't know what hawk, you know, what various birds look like just by looking at them. I don't know the distinguishing features of a red-tailed hawk and so on. Now, even if he's not consciously thinking of it, since phenomenal explanationism is a mentalist view, he's got all this additional evidence. Um, as a result of that, it's not the, the case that the best explanation of his total evidence is that this is a red-tailed hawk. Um, now, you might say, well, wait a minute, what if, we, what if we stipulate that John doesn't have any of that at all? He's a novice and he's so novice that he doesn't, he's not even aware that he's a novice. <laughs> um, now, it might be that, that it's a red-tailed hawk is the best explanation, but it's not a very good explanation, right? Ah, because there's, there's okay, all these other proviso about it's got to be a good, it's got to be, be a good one. Yeah, because he doesn't have yeah. much evidence. Now, now all he has is, I have this appearance, red-tailed hawk, but he doesn't have any information <laughs> about like what red-tailed hawks look like or none of this. And so you might think here, um, he just, he doesn't have a rich enough uh, evidence base in order for this, explanation, if it were the best, to be justified. Um, plus, we can also think of there's various rivals that, well, no, this is some other sort of hawk, and I've miscategorized it, or some other, given that he's a complete novice, it could be any of a number of birds um, 
that would fit his evidence just as well. Like if he just has this visual experience, given what he knows about birds, he's really only probably justifying believing here's a bird, you know, with certain colors. Right. Yeah. And, so and would, oh, sorry. I was just going to say that. So the background evidence is what really is playing the, the big role here. Yeah. Okay. And so because the background evidence is, is separating the cases mm -hmm. in terms of best explanation, does, does your view wash out in terms of uh, it, it would give the same explanation as phenomenal evidentialism because uh, plausibly on a phenomenal evidentialist view, you would have a, a total evidence proviso. So yes. It, would it align with um, phenomenal evidentialism with regard to yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Because you know, okay. phenomenal explanationism is a is a form of evidentialism. Right. Uh, okay. I just wanted to clarify so, that. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be uh, if, if it were, say, a different evidentialist view that um, maybe construed evidential support in some other way than explanatory. Maybe you know, it's just some other explanation of fit. Um, could still end up with the same result of saying, well, you look at the total evidence and given this total evidence, you know, this, you could even, you know, maybe uh, I'm a little hesitant on this, but because I, I actually don't think they can come apart as easily as this, but say if you had a view that was just in terms of the probabilities, um, you might have a total evidence view that says, well, given all of Deshaun's background evidence, um, it's really unlikely that he's wrong about this being a red-tailed hawk. Given John's, it's really likely that he is wrong because he, he doesn't have anything. Um, and so, or, you know, the, you might think of it in that sort of terms. The, re the reason why I mentioned I'm hesitant is because I, I think you can't get a lot of the probability stuff off the ground without explanatory stuff doing some heavy lifting. Uh, but that's okay. kind of a, And that's I also saw a paper, and we didn't talk about this now, but I could provide a link to it where you go back and forth with somebody, if I'm not mistaken, about the evidential value of explanations and why. Yeah. And it got a little technical, so I didn't go into it in this talk, but um, that might be another thing people could look at. Is that is that right? Right. Yeah. So there's a there's a few places where I've, I've done that. So Ted Poston and I have a couple of papers where we argue that uh, explanatoriness is evidentially relevant. And That's so we right. have a that was the paper with, I was talking uh, one yeah. of the papers I was talking yeah. about. Yes. We have a debate back and forth and a few things with uh, Elliot Sober and William Rausch about um, the ways that even within a probabilistic framework, like they like a Bayesian framework, that uh, explanatoriness can still have a role to play and still does okay. have various roles to play. Yeah. Okay, great. Lastly, I'd like to briefly mention Liz Jackson's forthcoming mm -hmm. article in uh, volume that you've co-edited, Seemings, and I mentioned this in the main video, Coffee with Philosophers, New Arguments, New Angles. And in, in that paper, uh, essentially, Liz argues that if seemings are evidence, then and people that disagree really sort of rarely share the same evidence. And this might connect back to a point you made earlier that like the expert will have a different perceptual experience or seeming as compared to the novice and perhaps i i haven't read all of liz's paper mm -hmm. but i just thought i'd get your initial impression on this perhaps one way of pushing it is saying um seemings are person relative and mm -hmm. they are the the content 
of the seeming, right. the actual um, content is filled out in very individualized ways that uh, make it such that two people are very unlikely to ever share the same seeming. And right. for, for that reason, how can seemings be evidence if they, one of the right. big sort of hallmarks of evidence is that it can be shared. It can be a common thing right. people point to and go, yeah, that supports this or doesn't. Um, so if, you, if people can't share the same evidence because seemings are evidence and people can't share them, then uh, people that disagree are going to have a hard time like reasonably disagreeing, rationally disagreeing. They're, they might just be talking past each other at all times. Yeah, no, that, that's very good. Yeah, I think um, I think sometimes when we do talk about evidence being the sort of thing that we directly share, um, we're talking about um, we have to be careful between like uh, I forget the term that they use, but there's justifying evidence, and then there's other things that we like we might call material evidence. So you know, in a court case, a bloody knife is evidence, but that's not justifying evidence. That doesn't give us a reason to believe anything unless I am aware of the knife and I'm aware of, you know, its relevance to the case at hand. Um, and so the justifying evidence is always going to be mental states. And so um, Liz's sort of worry is about, um, so there's one, there's kind of in the ontology of evidence, there's two broad views. One is um, what's called propositionalism, which says evidence consists of propositions. Um, and then there's various ways that people will distinguish, well, which propositions count as your evidence. So some people say only the propositions that you know, some will say on the other end, maybe just only the propositions you believe, others the only the ones you justifiably believe, however they want to do it. But then the other view, which phenomenal explanationism and phenomenal conservatism and other views hold is what's sometimes called psychologism, which is just, um, it's not the proposition that's evidence, it's actually the mental state itself is your evidence. So for instance, uh, if you, uh, on, on this sort of view, if you are currently feeling a pain, the propositionalist says your evidence is that you, you know, you feel this pain or whatever. That's the evidence. Whereas the, the view on the psychologism side, the phenomenal view of evidence says, no, your evidence is that pain experience itself. Um, and I think that's pretty plausible. So then Liz's worry is just as we can't share pains, you know, contrary to, uh, to, this will kind of date me a bit, but you know, when Bill Clinton said, I, you know, I feel your pain, <laughs> literally speaking, he doesn't and didn't feel anyone's pain, but his own, because <laughs> we can't share pains directly. Uh, and so her worries, well, we can't share evidence directly. Um, but I think that that misses some important things for the disagreement. So her thought is, you know, a lot of the disagreement literature, um, we have a, we only have a disagree, you know, a sort of interesting case of peer disagreement when we've shared our evidence and then we still disagree. But if we can't share our evidence, we can't have this sort of disagreement. And so this is thought to be a problem. Well, there's, there's a number of things to say here. One is um, I can share, we can have the same type of evidence. We just don't have tokens of it. So one thing to think is in terms of beliefs, um, if, we, if you and I both look at the same tree, we believe that there's a tree. You have one token of that belief and I have another token of that belief. We both have a belief of the same type that there's a tree um, and, you know, other particulars about it. But the token only exists in one, you know, for one of us. We can never both have the same token because it's a, you know, a particular concrete, in some sense, concrete thing. Right. So there's just um, so even if it's non-physical, it's a particular instance of that belief that only one of us has. 
But it still makes sense to say we believe the same thing, right? Um, and you, if that's if it's going to be a problem for evidence, it's going to be weird because it's going to be a problem in saying, well, um, you, you we're supposed to somehow have the same evidence, but this is a problem because you can't literally have the same mental state. But there's no problem in saying we have the same belief, even though we don't have the same token of belief. So you might think something similar here in this sense. Um, you have an appearance as of there being a tree, and I have an appearance as of there being a tree. In one sense, we have the same evidence. We have two tokens of the same type, right, of an appearance of the tree. So that's one thing to say uh, a bit in response to her. But uh, another thing is this, um, that even if you can't, if, if you set that aside, you say, well, that doesn't work. Um, it doesn't matter if you can share the exact evidence. All that matters for a disagreement case is that in the end, we have this the same body of relevant evidence. And if you accept a very plausible principle that Rich Feldman uh, called the evidence of evidence principle, um, then you can have that. And his principle is simply this, that if I have good evidence that you have good evidence in support of believing something, then that is itself evidence for me to believe that thing. So if, say, um, I haven't seen a particular math problem, but I have really good evidence that you've solved the math problem and that your answer is 72. That's evidence for me that the answer is 72 because I have evidence that you have evidence that it's 72, which is evidence for me that it's 72. And so you might think in a disagreement case, all that has to, when we share our evidence, if I find out, you know, if you believe P and I believe not P, when I learn that you believe P, I now have evidence that Christopher has evidence in support of P, which is evidence in support of P. Uh, so I can still get the same sort of worries that people have about disagreement stuff. You can still get the same sort of sharing of evidence in the relevant sense without um, giving up on the idea that our evidence consists of mental states. Um, and it's interesting that she, she's worried about this in the disagreement literature because uh, one of the very early moves in that literature was in the, I think it's 1996 paper where Peter Van Inwagen, uh, one of the early people talking about this in the contemporary discussion, uh, mentions uh, a disagreement between himself and David Lewis over free will. And he posits, at, at least in that initial paper, that, well, maybe I have just some sort of insight that I can't communicate to Lewis, and that's why I am justified in keeping my position, even though we've shared all this other evidence. So I've got evidence he doesn't have, and I can't explain it to him. Well, very quickly in the literature, people said, well, wait a minute. If you, you've already admitted that your, your peers, like he's just as smart as you, just as well-informed. If you have this sort of insight, then plausibly you've got good reason to think he has a similar sort of insight. And so you're stuck. Uh, and so, you know, without being able to share your insight, you still can create this sort of peer disagreement because you might have evidence that the other person has a similar insight. So that's kind of a long way of saying, um, I, I don't see a problem here for any sort of phenomenal view of evidence when it comes to disagreement, because I, one, it's, it's, it's not clear that to have the sort of disagreement case set up that you really need to share, um, evidence in that exact way where we have the same tokens. Yeah. It's kind of a long answer to that. No, that's helpful. And I know you, you said the, the first way of responding and then the the second way, though, I'm wondering if she could 
push back by just saying the evidence of evidence counting as evidence principle is false. Yeah, she might. I mean, I think you'd have a, a, a tough. That might be a, a tough, tough road to go, but. Yeah, because, I mean, you could go that route and say, no, no, look, no, you know, having evidence that someone else has evidence doesn't give you evidence. Right. Yeah, you might go that route, but that that's going to be a difficult one, I think. Or, or it gives you such minimal evidence that it's not the sort of evidence that could ever mount up to justify you in believing that P. I guess, I guess maybe your, your view could, could um, add up all the other relevant evidence and then it could justify you moving your credence in, in a different direction. But I guess to counter the actual relevant principle, you'd have to say evidence of evidence is never evidence, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That seems okay. bad. That'd be a tough, yeah. That would okay. be tough, yeah. That'd be a tough yeah. road to hoe. Yeah. All right. right. And so uh, finally, I'd love for you just to share, you know, you've, you've already, uh, for your age, I won't mention your age unless you want to, but um, <laughs> you've already accomplished a lot. It's very impressive. And I just want to encourage you and just say, keep going. You're doing great work. Is there anything... Um, Let's let's say people are outside academia mm -hmm. and they love reading philosophy of religion. I've I most of my uh, viewers are this way. They just love mm -hmm. it. They're just passionate about it and they want to grow as philosophers. But for whatever reason, it may not be a good time or may not have the resources to jump into a philosophy program. What would you recommend for them in terms of studying philosophy, philosophy of religion and um sort of tips, hacks, anything that comes to mind that they could do that would sort of move them along or expedite their growth as a Christian philosopher? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, uh, especially if they're already reading good philosophy of religion, that's that's a thing to do and, and like philosophical theology and so on. Um, but maybe depending on the particular questions that they're interested in, look at the general work in that area too, right? So if you're interested in, say, um, things like justification of religious belief and so on. So don't just read the philosophy of religion on those topics, but look broader at, say, epistemology in general. And, you know, um, look at things like good introductory texts. So I still think, like, um, it's a little expensive, but you might be able to find cheaper copies. Rich Feldman's little book just called Epistemology is an excellent sort of general resource on epistemology. Because I think, you know, with a lot of philosophy of religion, I, I, I think it's this way, it's, a lot of the uh, questions are questions that are, in a sense, part of other domains of philosophy as well. So certain things fall under epistemology, certain things fall under metaphysics, certain things fall under uh, ethics. Um, and having a kind of a, a deeper and broader sort of background in that area, I think, can really help someone improve as a, as a Christian philosopher because it'll help them in um getting a deeper understanding of some of the issues and then bringing those to bear. I think that's what some of the best Christian philosophers have done. So I think people like Plantinga and Swinburne and others have done that very thing. You know, they're, they're really sharp on a number of areas of philosophy and then they bring it to bear on uh, particular issues in philosophy of religion. Um, so that would be my that big advice would be for the areas that you, um, that you're particularly interested in, Focus on, of course, the philosophy of religion in that area, but then expand and look at, you know, what's what's going on in the, the general discipline itself um, and making use of there. There are good introductory texts, like I mentioned, like Feldman's textbook. There's good um, uh, 
making use of the free resources too, like the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy often has really good entries on things. Um, and just kind of working from there, um, but especially kind of start with the sort of general introductory text to get a grounding in it and then uh, continue to kind of layer on. And, and that'll help, I think, a lot. And just you can come to the debates in philosophy of religion with a strong grasp of the general philosophy of that area. And I, I think that's a, a, a really good way to kind of to improve as a philosopher of religion and just in thinking more clearly about the issues. But of course, I mean, don't stop reading the philosophy of religion in the process, but kind of do all of that and, and try to bring it in. Um, so that, and like I said, the free resources, those are probably my, my main two tips for that. Um, yeah. And, and those are, those are really great things to do. Yeah. Watch. Yeah. That's uh, excellent. And, and I, I just want to underline that. Is, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just want to underline that very thing, because what I've found, so I, I come from pretty much total secular philosophy world. <laughs> and and as I've gotten deeper, I mean, I taught a course in philosophy of religion, um, upper division course. And, you know, so I've, I've dabbled in philosophy of religion, but now that's my main focus. And as I've gotten into the philosophy of religion literature, I do find often that there are a lacuna. There's gaps in the knowledge that I, I, I want to just sort of say, wait, are you aware of this bigger picture? And I'll just give you one, for instance, in the work on divine love, God's love, there's a very influential view, Eleanor Stump's view, which is an Aquinas-based view, which is uh, that there's two different desires that constitute God's love, the desire for union, and then the desire for the well-being or the beneficence uh, desire, the well-being of the other for the sake of the other. But yet, when you look at just the Stanford Encyclopedia article, yeah. going back to your, your uh, suggestion with the free resources on love, just the philosophy of love, mm -hmm. Stump's view is just one tiny little sliver of a right. perspective on love. So her yeah. view is love is robust concern for the other person. But there are all these different views, like emotional, unemotional view. Right. And then that could shed light. Well, if you think, well, maybe that's not the best view. Maybe a, a view that really countenances the emotional aspect of love is really important. Then that might feed back into your philosophy of religion such that, well, maybe God's not impassable. Maybe God right, can right. change and, and, ha and have emotional experiences and respond to his creatures right, right. in an emotional capacity. So, so there can be sort of going back to, to Kevin's excellent point, there can be this back and forth, this mutual reinforcing and deepening that can occur at the same time if you sort of hold both literatures in your hands and go Yeah, no, that's very good. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Great. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for your time and uh, thank you for your work. And uh, I'll provide a link to, to all your books and your resources. And wh where's the best place for people to reach you? Is it at your website? Yeah, they can just get on my website. It's uh, just my name, kevinmccain.org. Uh, um, and that has like CV research. It's got my email address on the CV and stuff. So yeah, they can shoot me an email if they want to talk about something, whatever. Follow Kevin and we'll see you in the next episode of the podcast. Thank you.